This is the CQ on Congress Coronavirus Special Report. We are bringing you daily updates on the policy news you need to know using the reporting prowess of CQ Roll Call. I'm Sean Zeller. It's Monday, April 6th. American business people have flooded banks seeking the low interest, forgivable loans Congress has offered as one way to prop up the economy. The millions of Americans out of work are likewise rushing to state unemployment offices to apply for the expanded benefits now on offer. And yet lawmakers are already saying they will need to do more. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi wants to expand and extend those benefits. But as Florida GOP Senator Marco Rubio said today, I think that the bigger challenge is logistical. And that is how do you get over 500 members of Congress back to Washington to take a vote in the House and Senate? It would almost have to be structured as something that's voted on unanimously in both chambers uh, because I think it's going to be very difficult logistically to move and get everybody back there, especially given the uptick in the infection rate in, in the D.C. area. More than 10,000 Americans have now died of COVID-19. Hospitals and hotspots like New York are still short of protective equipment for doctors and nurses and ventilators to keep gravely ill patients alive. But there is some hope that, at least in places like New York, the virus is reaching its peak ferocity. The number to die in New York in the past day, 599, was about the same as the day before. Still, challenges abound to drive that trajectory down and to prevent new epicenters from emerging as the toll in cities like New Orleans and Detroit grows. In another sign of the gravity of the situation, President Donald Trump and the presumptive Democratic nominee for president, Joe Biden, also spoke today about how best they could work together to combat the virus. We turn first today to CQ Roll Call's Mary Ellen McIntyre for an update on the battle to contain the coronavirus. Hi, this is Mary Ellen McIntyre, healthcare reporter for CQ Roll Call. A report released today from the Department of Health and Human Services Inspector General surveying hospital administrators found that hospitals were underprepared and unable to test patients at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. And when they could test patients, they found punitive delays in getting those responses back that hampered their ability to respond to the virus. Investigators for the OIG at HHS interviewed more than 300 hospital executives across the country about their hospital's preparedness and ability to treat COVID-19 patients. The executives said that they were unable to test enough patients, which hampered their response and affected their workforce. Because they couldn't test efficiently, that meant doctors were using more personal protective equipment out of an abundance of caution, and more hospital staff than usual was wearing that PPE. One hospital executive interviewed said that his facility typically uses 200 masks a day, and at the time they were interviewed last month, they were going through about 2,000 masks a day. Another reported having to turn to atypical sources like beauty salons, online retailers, or home supply stores for PPE rather than their typical medical suppliers. They also had to deal with price gouging. One said that while a single mask usually costs 50 cents, in this case, they were costing them up to $6 for a single mask. Hospitals also raised concerns about staffing shortages that affected their ability to care for patients as staff members needed to quarantine themselves after exposure to the virus. Without that, levels of anxiety were really high among staff members at hospitals who were concerned about possibly being exposed themselves and then going home and possibly exposing their family members to the virus. These interviews occurred in March, late March, and at the time, hospitals forecast not the idea of not having enough ventilators, which is something that's come true in the last several days and has been a concern in two of the hardest states hit so far, New York and Louisiana. 
Hospitals forecasted that these shortages could also lead to ethical concerns as doctors have to make decisions about which patients should be put on the ventilator. In the report, hospitals also laid out steps that they thought the government should take to support them as they fight the pandemic. Some of those steps that they recommended, like allowing hospitals to set up surge facilities outside of the hospital and in atypical settings, or allowing more patients to be testing at home, the administration and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services did last week. Additionally, HHS today said that it would be purchasing Abbott's new point-of-care tests and sending those to public health labs in every state, territory, and D.C. across the country. These are the tests that President Trump touted last week that will provide a result in less than 15 minutes as to whether or not someone has COVID-19. The administration, in the release announcing this, they touted that this test and greater use of it could help cut down on the use of PPE since it only requires a face mask and gloves to administer. That goes back directly to the hospital's concern about burning through PPE as they're trying to test patients for the virus. Now, Sean, back to you. And now we turn to education policy. Across the country, at least 124,000 schools have closed in order to combat the spread of the virus, affecting more than 55 million students. Twelve states have already closed schools for the remainder of the academic year, and more are sure to follow. Some schools are asking students to participate in online classes, but that isn't always possible, especially in low-income and rural areas where some districts are saying that as many as half of students aren't completing distance learning assignments. That forebodes a further widening of the achievement gap, says Aaron Dworkin, who heads the National Summer Learning Association. I spoke to him about the problem and how policymakers might seek to address it. So, Aaron, the achievement gap is something that has defied solutions in normal times, and now we're looking at what could potentially be a many months long period where children are out of school. Um, what do you see as the risk for learning? Is, is it likely that that achievement gap will rise under the current circumstances? There's a lot of research to show uh, that it's really uh, students who suffer the most are, are those who are low income, most under resourced. So you can even see there how quickly uh, the digital divide issues emerge because some students were able to have the resources at home to jump on laptops and have went to schools where the schools were prepared to kind of start teaching online, and then there are students who do not. And, and the research shows that even in two to three months, uh, middle and upper middle class kids can keep finding experiences over the summer to keep learning, and low-income kids don't have access to those same experiences, and they fall behind. So here we are in a situation that's kind of a, a protracted, and everyone needs to be much more creative. Uh, there will be learning loss, for sure, because what everyone's doing, while valiant, terrific efforts, will not replace what happens in a school and in a classroom. Um, you can't even imagine for so many of us uh, what some of the challenges are at home uh, for kids. And for millions of kids, school is the safest, uh, best place to get a meal, to have uh, adults who care about you and check in with you. For some, being home and stuck at home is not a great environment to learn. Uh, you can just imagine for so many reasons, if you're in an abusive household, if you're, there's multiple children, there's not a, lot, a, a ton of food, if your parents just uh, been laid off, uh, you're, there are so many circumstances that kids need to navigate. So there's a lot of gaps, there's going to be a lot of loss, and you have to pull this all hands on deck moment. On, on your board, I know on your board of directors, you have uh, Johns Hopkins University sociologist Carl Alexander, who 
pioneered a study uh, that goes back to the early 80s where he tracked Baltimore school, uh, public school children for 25 years. And he found that the achievement gap um, between low income and more affluent, not necessarily wealthy, but more affluent children, albeit all in the Baltimore City public schools, uh, grew significantly over the summers and not as much during the school years. And in fact, it built up over those summers and by fifth grade, uh, there was about a two-grade-level uh, gap between the lower-income children and those more affluent. And so this is what your association has been tackling now. It's, uh, the problem is redoubled with the, with the long-term closures for the virus. Absolutely. So there's a lot of research, starting uh, with Dr. Carl Alexander's uh, real you know, groundbreaking research on summer learning loss, and that it was also cumulative and and that's what you're saying. So it does add up over time. Uh, but there have been so many other studies that talk about the physical um, I- effects and obesity grows because kids are less active. Uh, so there's, there's health issues. They have less access to healthy meals, uh, safety concerns. And, and so on the academic, there's a lot that show that strong programs, uh, conversely, uh, when you do get students enrolled in programs that infuse and include uh, academics in them and maybe combine them with enrichment and sports, uh, that students do better and they close those gaps and, and they can improve reading scores and math scores. So, I mean, I think it just, I think it, it sounds obvious, but there's a lot to show that there are just major setbacks when students aren't learning and learning and it can be different than schooling. I just want to make that distinction because, you know, uh, middle and upper middle class families at the beginning of time are, will gladly spend uh, excess resources to make sure that their kids have wonderful experience, go to overnight camp, go on trips, go to museums, go on specialty programs to learn new skills, pay, you know, allow uh, folks to do unpaid internships. So when you think about all the experiences and education and learning experiences that happen over the summer, there's tremendous uh, variety. And then you have low-income kids who can't afford to access any of them or participate in any of them. And, and that over time, will we'll just widen these gaps. So we talk about both the achievement gaps and the opportunity gaps. And, and that's why I was saying earlier that there's so many people who want to jump in here and help, uh, but they need to break down silos in order to do so and be connected. And that's one of the roles our organization plays. What is your advice for policymakers who can now foresee that this problem is going to be even bigger than normal when children get back to school? Policymakers are, are very aware of this issue both at the national level and local level. So in the last stimulus bill uh, package, I know they're working on a fourth one now, but in the third one, uh, there was funding for education, uh, about 30, more than 30 billion and then $13.5 billion for K-12 education, which sounds like a big number, but that's out of a $2 trillion package. And also um, when you spread it out across the country, gets spent quickly, but in that, one of the allowable uses was summer learning programs uh, called out. And we have technology issues. And, and so policymakers are tackling a lot of these different issues. Uh, but they're also putting out immediate fires right now. We are encouraging them to create task forces that will take a, take a longer view and be able to help them you know, think about what are we going to do in the next three months. Because there is this hope and possible uh, a real hope, maybe I don't know what to say, the expectation that the virus may subside and that there, the next time adult 
educators uh, will be with kids face-to-face might be over the summer. So we need folks to prepare. And that's going to sneak up on us very fast uh, right now. And it's April, but uh, if you want to think about June and July and August, we need to start thinking about it right now. And and so maybe our frontline policymakers who are working on, on healthcare issues, immediate crisis for sure, and we understand that, that's the priority, uh, can delegate to a few other folks in their communities. Learning outside of the classroom has been an afterthought, I think, for many schools and many school districts. This certainly could change that, and that might be a rare silver lining that comes out of this situation. I, well, I, I think a lot of people do think about out-of-school time as, and, and trying to connect it to school districts. So I, it's not that they haven't, uh, but I think it doesn't always get the space and the place to figure out how to make those connections stronger. And I think this will, a silver lining may be that this will force um, the different silos in education, the school day, the after-school programs, the summer programs, some of these other settings programs, those youth programs in public housing, parks and rec, libraries. There's so many people trying to serve this, usually the most uh, similarly uh, vulnerable children in different ways in different times of day and year and, and they don't always connect. And this it might, silver lining might be that this will force folks to be efficient and, and more creative about how we work together. One of the other problems, though, is that, of course, uh, state revenues are collapsing as sales taxes aren't being collected, as people's incomes evaporate. Um, that, I'd imagine, is going to pose a problem for schools that will need revenue to ramp back up. That's absolutely true. When people say they were going to return to normal, you know, they say they never return. It's not going to go back to the way it was before we had this countrywide shutdown. So uh, that's a huge concern. It's probably one of the reasons some of the money that's been allocated to schools won't be spent on summer programs. They're going to need it to fill some of their budget holes. There's an opportunity here for philanthropy foundations, um, working with a lot of them right now. Wallace Foundation is a tremendous leader in the out-of-school time space, and the Mott Foundation out of Michigan, New York Life as an insurance foundation, as a corporate partner. So I think there are a lot of people who are trying to figure out how they can help fill some gaps and and be creative. You know, what do they say? Uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And and so a lot of institutions and structures and, and ways of acting that were always in place, I think may need to be upended or rethought at the moment in order to stretch uh, the dollars and, and people. So for example, there are a lot of programs uh, that have, uh, laid off a lot of after-school programs that have laid off workers uh, because they can't afford them. And, the, and this revenue challenge is, is severe. It takes a lot of collaboration and a lot of creative thinking uh, to, to fill some gaps and do things in a different, maybe cheaper way. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Okay. Thank you so much for having us and thanks for putting a spotlight on this issue. Appreciate it. And finally tonight, Boris Johnson the Prime Minister of Great Britain, has surrendered leadership of the country to Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab and entered intensive care for COVID-19. And in Wisconsin, the governor, Tony Evers, a Democrat, today postponed his state's election from tomorrow until June 9th. Over the weekend, the GOP-controlled legislature had refused to move the date. The governor's move may have violated state law, and the delay means some local offices won't get filled, raising questions about the the continuity of Wisconsin's government. 
That's our CQ on Congress coronavirus special report for tonight. We'll be back tomorrow with the latest. For all of the CQ Roll Call Newsroom, I'm Sean Zeller.